For those of you who were with us last week or tuned in online, um, I mentioned then that uh, this week's sermon and last week's sermon formed sort of a part one and part two sort of deal. And so uh, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to be right back where we were last week in John chapter 10 with a, a part two of the, the passage here. Um, you know, last week, though, we looked at verses one through five, and, and we honed in on those issues pertaining to uh, the presence of false shepherds in our midst and the importance of having a good shepherd to watch over and to care for our lives. Uh, but this week, I want to look at the expansion of these themes that we find uh, verse 6 and verse 7 and beyond. John tells us in verse 6 that uh, those who heard Jesus use the, this illustration of the, the sheep and the, the, the sheepfold and the thieves and robbers, those, those who heard him talk about this were, uh, well, they were confused. They didn't understand what he meant, which should really come as no surprise to us, should it? Because after all, right here, even in this passage, Jesus is talking about how his own sheep, um, they are the ones who know his voice. When, when they, the, the ones that belong to him, when they hear him speak, um, they're not pushed away by his use of parables or cryptic illustrations. No, instead they're drawn into him. That's, the, that's part of the purpose of the parables and the, the cryptic illustrations is to draw people closer to himself, to lean into what he's teaching. To, to, to want to know more, to, wanna, to, wanna, to want the key to unlock what he's trying to say. But the ones that don't belong to him find his words both perplexing and troublesome. And even when those who don't belong to him do eventually have some sense of what he's saying, well, they, bas- they basically just take what he says and uses that as an occasion to further reject him. So what follows in this passage here as we dive in, beginning in verse 6 here in a moment, is not only going to represent an expansion upon uh, some of the metaphors that were introduced in verses 1 through 5, but what follows is also an ongoing indictment against any and all whose interests are not in the things of God or his flock. All right, so let's pick up here in John chapter 10. We're on page 862 if you happen to grab one of those guest Bibles in the back, uh, beginning in verse 6 and concluding in verse 18. Those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand what he meant. So he explained it to them. I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him and he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money and doesn't really care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep, and they know me, just as my Father knows me, and I know the Father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, too, that are not in this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock with one shepherd. The Father loves me because I sacrificed my life, so I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to, and also to take it up again. For this is what my Father has commanded. Now, 
in the NLT here, in verse 6, it uses a word that I'm not particularly fond of, at least in this uh, rendering of the, of the original language. It's in verse 6 when it says, those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand what he meant. So I'm sorry, verse 7. So he explained it to them. I don't like the use of the word explain there. I don't think that's the best word to describe the relationship between verses 1 through 5 and then verses 7 through 18. You see, what's happening here in, this, in this, these, these two parts of this larger whole is that Jesus isn't just taking this nice, neat parable and then explaining its meaning with the later verses. No, instead, he's adjust, taking the metaphors that were introduced, and then he's going to expand upon them and, and even at times adjust them to suit the points he's trying to make. In fact, in the Greek, it doesn't say he explained it to them. It just says, again, Jesus said to them. So it's not necessarily explanation as much as it is expansion and adjustment. In verses 1 through 5, as well as in verse 11 and 14, Jesus is the shepherd. But, but then in verse 7, he's not just the shepherd who passes through a gate. He is the gate itself. So you see there's a, a twist on the metaphors that are introduced. In the verses before, it's the shepherd who leads the sheep out. But, but in verses 7 and following, it's the shepherd who leads them in and out. So there's this added dimension of, of in as well as out. And then you have verses 12 and 15 and 16 that introduce either brand new ideas altogether into the narrative or expand greatly or repurpose uh, points already made. You have the hired hands that are mentioned. You have the, the mention of sheep from other flocks. You have this idea of the shepherd dying, which is, which is totally new uh, to, to the text here. And so verses 7 and following are not just explanation of a, a tight, cohesive parable, but they're, they represent Jesus taking Ideas that were introduced in the first few verses, expanding upon them and repurposing them to make larger points about himself. And I hope that's a little bit clarifying for you this morning, because if you're just casually reading the text and you hear Jesus talking about the shepherd who, who is the, the authentic shepherd because he approaches by the gate and not climbing over a wall, then you're wondering why in the very next breath he's just saying, why am the gate? Well, what's the deal? Well, Jesus is just trying to make multiple points about himself, and we want to focus in on those multiple points this morning, and they center on the two I am statements that we found in our text. I am the gate for the sheep, and I am the good shepherd. What is the function of a gate? I mean, we all know what gates are, and we all know what gates do. It's similar to a door, isn't it? In fact, depending on which translation you have, you might see door, you might see gate. But in the, the context of a, of a sheep pen, the gate is, is what determines entry into the enclosure. So what is Jesus claiming about himself here? Well, it doesn't take a whole lot of effort to, to see what he's claiming here, at least for those who have the eyes to see. If we, if we draw, as I think John intends for us to, from that rich Old Testament background that, that, that talks about such things in these categories, well, we, we will know that the flock here represents God's covenant people. At least at this point, we're understanding the flock to mean Israel. God's covenant people. But then, of course, Jesus will expand on that in verse 16. He'll talk, and he talks about other sheep that are not yet in this fold that he will bring in too. And so he's talking about you and I here this morning. He's talking about, yes, his covenant people, Israel, but also the, the Gentile people. And together they form one new covenant people that are the flock of God. And so if the flock is God's new covenant people, and the way to enter into the fold is through the gate— and if Jesus is the gate, then what? What are we to conclude? Well, simply put, to be members of God's flock, you have to come in through him and through him alone. And already, 
at the beginning of another sermon on an I am statement, we come face to face with another one of those strong, exclusive claims of Jesus, who has already told us, I am true bread. I, my flesh and my blood are your true food and drink. If you desire to have life, if you desire to live, if you desire not to die, then you have to consume me. You have to receive my sacrifice on your behalf. I am the true bread of life. I am the light of the world. The, the true light, the only light that reveals God in a saving way. If you want to know what God is like, you can't go anywhere else. You have to come to me. Very exclusive claim from the mouth of Jesus. Of course, next week, it's, it's that, that all-important passage that we've probably referred to a thousand times over the years when Jesus is going to say, I am the only way to the Father. It, he's not leaving room for, for gray in this area, is he? he he's not saying, I'm, I'm a way or even a good way to the Father. He's claiming to be the only way to the Father. A very exclusive claim about himself. And of course, here. I am the gate. I am the entry point. I am the sole means to enter into the membership of and the blessings of the flock of God. You see, the Bible portrays people as sheep. (laughs) It's not a very flattering uh, depiction, by the way. Uh, But sheep that matter to God, but sheep nonetheless. Sheep that have wandered and strayed away from God. We've all gone our own direction. We've all gone in rebellion uh, against our creator. And we are all lost and wandering like like sheep without a a shepherd. And that's how the Bible presents the the predicament that humanity finds itself in. But but the promise of God, and you can go back to Ezekiel 34 or really anywhere else where the, the matter is discussed. The promise of God is that he himself would come and rescue his sheep. He is the one who has taken the initiative. He is the one who has secured the only way back to himself. You don't get to pick and choose the way back to God. You you chose to wander away from him. But if you want to return to him, you have to return to him in the means and in the manner and in the way that he himself has prescribed. And that is what? By grace, through faith, in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is saying about himself here. You have wandered I've come to recover and return and restore you to to God. And the only way for that to happen in your life is if you come through me, the gate to the enclosure. Period. All throughout salvation history, though, false shepherds have lived and ruled and directed people to wander outside the boundary lines of the covenant to which they belong. The, the, the way that God has, has worked in the world to bring people back to himself, at every step along the way, there have been thieves and robbers who have sought to kill and destroy and direct people outside those boundary lines, outside those channels, outside those means of grace. But, but when we listen to Jesus, and, who, by the way, affirms this in verse 8, doesn't he? He affirms this truth in verse 8. He's, he's basically, basically saying, all those false shepherds who came before me Those ones who directed the people of God or people in the world to seek salvation, to seek life, to seek reconciliation, to seek whatever is truly needed in the soul of of their lives outside of what God has prescribed for them. And just like there were people then, all who came before me were thieves and robbers, so too are those today who seek to tell you that there is salvation outside the name of Jesus. Anyone or anything out there, any voice in the world, whether it be a voice from the world, whether it be a voice from your own flesh, whether it be the voice of the devil himself, 
that points to any other way to be saved or reconciled or brought back into fellowship with God and his people, any voice that tells you that speaks in direct contradiction to the voice of Jesus. So you can't say, I'm a Christian, I accept what Jesus did for me, I want to follow his word, but I'm going to maintain that there's some other gate that might be good for them. This is just what's good for me, but I can't judge, I can't project my good on someone else. I'm going to let them kind of find their own way. Jesus doesn't leave room for that. He is the only gate to the sheep. And the ones who truly belong to him, they will be comforted by these words. They will be comforted by the assurance that comes by having returned to God through Christ. Because you can be assured. That if, if God in his word promises those that, that come to him through his son will be saved, then you and I have assurance that what his word says is true. We, we don't have to wonder. We don't have to doubt. We, we can know today that we belong to the flock because we believe that his, what his word says about our lives is true. But the ones who maintain that there are alternate ways into the flock, alternate ways into fellowship with God, they will be troubled by the claims of Jesus here of, of exclusivity. They will be perplexed and confounded, and they will reject the voice of Jesus altogether. The one who leaves no middle ground. If Jesus is who he says he is, then we must either accept all of what he says or none of it at all. You can't pick and choose. Jesus doesn't leave room for that. You either take it all or you forsake it all. But there's another dimension here to what Jesus is saying when he's talking about himself as the gate to the sheep. He's saying that not only do you gain access and in entry into the sheepfold of God to become part of his new covenant people, God's saving work in the world, but you will also find through Christ true provision, true security, and true rest. Verse 9, he says, those who come in through me will be saved. Thank you, Jesus, for that. But they will also come and go freely and will find good pastures. Isn't that comforting to your heart this morning to know that you and I have access to everything we truly need in this life and in the life to come through Jesus? That, that through him, all our striving cease. All of our efforts to to truly provide what we ultimately need and to take care of ourselves and, and to determine our future, all those things are put to rest in him. His promise to us in verse 10 is a rich and satisfying life, or more literally, life to the full. Real life in Christ and through Christ. But there's this temptation, isn't there? There's a temptation that you probably already felt at some level this morning when you woke up when you got out of bed and you thought about your day, or you felt about it this, 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 this weekend as you carried about your business and you were either working or, or at home with your family or, or out with friends or doing whatever it is people that aren't in ministry do on the weekend. I'm working the whole time, but I don't know what the rest of you do are doing on Friday and Saturday. Or, or in the last week of your life, there's this, there's this temptation. And sometimes it's subtle and it's, it's sneaky and it kind of comes into your life like a, like a ninja. You don't know it's there until it springs upon you at the last minute. But sometimes it's overwhelming. And you feel it in every decision you make and in every matter that is presented to you and every, every thought that goes through your mind. You feel this temptation over and over pressing it upon you. And the temptation is this, even for members of the flock of God. 
And that is to search for life to the full somewhere else than Jesus. Yes, thank you, Jesus. You, you saved me from the consequences of my sin. I don't have to worry about you know, some distant you know, eternity of torment because of you. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me from, from that. But then we turn around and, and we listen to, to some other voice. We, 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 we have the, the desires of the body or the, the cries of our emotions or, or something in our hearts that tells us that X, Y, and Z, something other than Jesus will actually satisfy me now today. Yes, I have Jesus for, for then, but I need something else now to, in order to complete me. Something else now to give me purpose. Something else now to satisfy my, my desires. Something else now, even though it's outside his, his, his stated will for my life, even though it stands in direct opposition to everything his word says to me about what life is all about and what is ultimately true and good, if I just have that thing in my life or just do that thing, even though God says it's not best for me, then I will find the satisfaction that I need. Then I will find that fulfillment. Then I will become complete. And that's a subtle temptation or an overwhelming temptation for everyone, maybe not every single day, but probably at some point in every single day. Jesus' claim here in these verses is not so subtle. His claim is that nothing in your life that doesn't have Jesus at the center of it will ever truly satisfy. Nothing, nothing in your life that doesn't have Jesus at the center of it will ever truly satisfy. And that's the false promise of sin, isn't it? If I only had that thing, if I only could do that thing, if I only had, you know, someone else's job, if I only had someone else's possessions, if I only had someone else's wife, if I only had someone else's children, if I only had someone else's looks, if I only had whatever I fill in the blank, this thing that I feel like I have to have in order to be happy, in order to have peace, in order to be at rest, if only I have that thing, then my life would be fulfilled. And Jesus says, not if it isn't of me. No matter how you feel, no matter what you think, if it's not of me, if I'm not at the center of it, if it doesn't fall within the boundary lines of my word, it will never be good for you. It might feel good, it might seem good in the moment, but it will never deliver on its promises. Only that which falls within the boundary lines of what Jesus deems right, Jesus deems good, what Jesus deems true will suffice. There's only one means of receiving real eternal life. There's only one source of true knowledge of God. There's only one fount of spiritual nourishment. There's only one basis for spiritual security, and that is Jesus Christ alone, who is the gate to come into the sheepfold of God and to go out to find rich pastures, which tells me Jesus is actively working right now, right now in your life and in my life, to ensure that you have the best possible life as a member of his flock. But keep in mind, best here means best according to his perspective as the good shepherd. You know, your best and my best and his best don't always see eye to eye, do they? <laughs> we think we've got it figured out. We think, you know, we've settled the big things. You know, I, I punched my ticket to heaven. I said yes to Jesus once a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But now today, 
I think I know what I need now. I, I think I know what is best for me now. And Jesus' best, which he reveals primarily through his word, doesn't seem to be what's best by my estimation. But to accept his offer to be saved is to also accept his offer of provision. To say yes to him as Savior is to say yes to him as Lord. You see, the gate to the pen is the same gate to the pasture. His way in and his way out go hand in hand. And his way can be trusted in both directions. So if you, if you, if you pass by the gate to go to what, what you, you think you need for eternity, great. But the same gate that you pass for life and security and nourishment and direction and protection and care and everything else you need today, it's the same gate both directions. And to accept one is to accept them both. And he can be trusted both ways. And how do we know that he can be trusted? Well, simply put, we know he can be trusted because the manner by which he has secured his best for you. I am the good shepherd. What does that mean, Jesus? It means I'm the one who sacrifices my life for the sheep. The manner that he secures his best for you is how you know you can trust him. Do you remember God's accusations against the false shepherds in Ezekiel 34 that I read last week? They're pretty, they're pretty grim. They're pretty powerful. They're, they're, they leave no room for, you know, well, how do you really feel, God? I mean, he's pretty clear. You drink the milk, you wear the wool, you butcher the best animals, but you let your flock starve. You have not taken care of the weak. You have not tended the sick or bound up the injured. You have not gone looking for those who have wandered away and are lost. Instead, you have ruled them with harshness and cruelty. You abandoned my flock and left them to be attacked by every wild animal. You didn't search for my sheep when they were lost. No, you took care of yourselves and left my sheep to starve. In other words, everything they should have done, they didn't do. But God, through Christ, has done everything that they should have done and is continuing to do it today. He cares for the weak. He tends the flock. He heals the injured. They, they have ruled with harshness and cruelty, but he guides and he directs and he shepherds with kindness and meekness and gentleness and humility. They have run at the first sight of danger. Jesus has drawn near. He's come right into the middle of your life, right into the middle of mine. As we said last week, he's not afraid to get his hands dirty. He's taken up residence in our midst. They have abandoned the flock to be destroyed by the wild animals. Jesus leaves the 99 to seek and save the one. And all of these things, as the good shepherd, he does at the expense of himself. Every bit of it is at this, the expense of himself. Every step of his self-abasement from heaven to the cradle to the grave was at a cost to himself. We're told in the beginning of John, he came to his own and did they receive him with fanfare and praise and you know, 
lavish you know, love and adoration and acceptance upon him? No. He came to his own, and they despised him. He was accused as a liar, a heretic, a fraud, a crazy person, one filled with devils. Everywhere he went, that's what he heard about himself. Even this passage right here fits right squarely in the middle of a couple of sections that talk about how, how he could, the, the, the people could get rid of him. Just a few verses later, it's going to tell us that the people, after hearing these things he's saying about himself and, and hearing the application of what it means for, for him and for them, they begin picking up, looking for rocks on the ground. How can we silence this person? How can we snuff him out? How can we end this ridiculous charade that is parading itself in our midst? And Jesus is saying, all along, I'm here for you. All of it from the beginning to the end is at my expense for you. Because the good shepherd doesn't exploit the sheep. The good shepherd doesn't use the sheep for his own advantage. No, the good shepherd sacrifices himself for the sheep. Thieves and robbers, they talk a good talk, don't they? They make all sorts of promises, and they sound awful good, but at the end of the day, a thief or a robber will never put their money where their mouth is. A thief and robber, well, they'll split at the first sight of danger, won't they? Jesus says as much in verses 12 and 13. They don't have any real skin in the game. But Jesus proves that unlike them, he is in it for the sheep. And he proves that by all that he gave, not all that he took. So you can trust him then. You can trust the one who created you. The one who came to you and is coming to you now. The one who has done everything necessary to rescue you at, at, at the cost of his own life. And though his best might not seem like it at first, you never have to doubt his heart. Because what's in his heart is behind everything that he says and does. Stop and think about this for a moment. It's a little bit of a, a mental exercise, as it were. Think about this question and think honestly about your, your answer, how you feel inclined to answer the question. What are the roots of Jesus' sacrifice for his sheep? In other words, what's the source behind it? Where, where does the, the work of Jesus on the cross originate from? Well, if we're not careful, we can answer this question in a really wrong way. We know the occasion for the cross, don't we? The occasion, of course, is our sinfulness and our waywardness. It's God's chosen means by which men and women and boys and girls might be saved. If you, if you trust in his gracious provision and you, you come back to God through Christ, then you will be saved. So we know the occasion for his self-giving on the cross. But what is behind it? What, 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 does, what does it emerge out of? What is sort of, and what does it reveal? And that's a question we've been diving deeply into on Wednesday nights over the last several weeks. I, 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 I've loved getting into the upper room discourse with the, the class that's uh, there in, in the fellowship hall and those who are tuning in online. And you can go back if you ever want to catch up. Um, you know, make sure you have plenty of time to do it because there's, there's a lot of content and a lot to think about. And it's not too late to, to dive in if you want to come join us because we're exploring these very issues and a very deep dive into them. But my point here this morning is this. The self-giving love of Jesus on the cross doesn't have its roots and origin in our sin. 
as if, as if because of our sin, he was compelled to give his life away because we needed rescue. It's something that he came and did just because of who we are. No. His compulsion lies not in our sin, but in his nature. And that is a major distinction that you and I have to make in our minds and maintain always. He didn't do it because you and I screwed up. He did it because of who he is. As we've been exploring on, on Wednesday nights, God, Jesus is revealing to us in the upper room and, and throughout his life and ministry and through the explanation of his life and ministry in the epistles, God is love. Which is another way of saying God is a communion of persons, Father, Son, and Spirit from eternity past who are in the other and for the other, who, who always focus on the other and never upon themselves. It is at the very heart of God that self-giving love originates. That's where it comes from. And because of that, self-giving love is something that is transcendent, something that precedes all of creation, something that will outlast everything and, and never end. We see that when Jesus says in 1513 that greatest love lays one's life down for one's friends, he's pointing to something that transcends space and time, something that points to and originates in the very triune life of God himself. And so when Jesus steps onto the scene, and calls himself the good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. We can know that his best for us is always best because he doesn't lay down his life out of necessity, but out of freedom, the freedom of who he is. And he says as much in verse 18, no one takes my life from me. I give it voluntarily. I, I know my father and I know you. And, I, and because I, I know you as I know my father, I give my life away. In other words, what defines the inner life of God now defines our relationship here. Because of this, this connection I have with, with the Father and the Spirit, because I'm in him and, and them and they and me, and we are in each other and for each other, this reality that God is, I am now revealing to you and drawing you into. Because I know my sheep and my sheep know me, I give my life away in love. It's not because you've done some terrible thing and I have to now do something outside of my sort of normal normal day-to-day -day stuff. As if God is sort of over here doing his thing, and then we mess up, so now God's got to like, okay, i got to go do this thing to fix the problem. And I then do something that's, that's really not a part of my life. I have to, to add something to myself in order that you can be made right. No, Jesus says, what I already am, I now am for you, and that is what saves. That the cross reveals the very nature and heart of God. And because of that, you can trust his every word. He's not just performing some function because he has to. He willingly, he voluntarily gives his life away for the sheep because he, that's who he is. He is self-giving love itself. So you can trust your life to him. Even when his words for you are hard. <laughs> Even when his revealed will to you is difficult. Even when everything around you and perhaps everything inside of you tells you otherwise, his best is always best for you. There is no safer, more secure, more rich or satisfying life than life as part of the flock of Jesus. Despite all the promises of the world and its pleasures, despite all the promises of the flesh with its carnal desires. 
despite all the promises of the devil or those through whom he seeks to come in into the flock by means of climbing the wall to seek and destroy. Despite all of those things, only Jesus provides the life that we are created for. Only Jesus provides the life our hearts truly desire. Only Jesus truly satisfies. And he does so freely and willingly at the ultimate cost to himself. One out of self-giving love something he doesn't just do because of our sin, but something he already is because of his nature. His words here, they're a comfort to his flock and they're an indictment against his opposers. But for all of us, they are an invitation. Jesus is inviting you today to come back to God through him. To, to let him be the one who takes the chaos and the disorder and the suffering and the misery that sin has produced, all that brokenness. He heals your brokenness. He heals our diseases. He takes it all into himself and he makes us new. You can come back to God through him. His gracious provision of salvation and rescue. Jesus' invitation is for you to find all that you need today for life to the fullest. Not some second-rate, superficial existence, but as our sign says, real life. Capital R, capital L. It's only in him, and he invites you to it. He invites you to trust his heart that has always turned out toward you in love in the same way that it is always turned out towards his Father in love. Do you hear the invitation of Jesus today? The gate to the sheep, the good shepherd himself. And will you respond to him in faith? Lord, thank you that we have this time where we can set apart a few moments to come together and worship you and, and, and embody, be embodied together. The, the true flock of God is made up of all who are in Christ, both, both in the past and today, both here and abroad. Everywhere that, that there are people who belong to you, that is your flock. It is a universal Catholic, little c, not big c, Roman Catholic, but little, little c, Catholic reality. It is a universal reality. But that universal reality finds its expression right here in places just like this. And we get to taste and hear and smell the flock. And that is, it is a good thing that we're more than just disembodied souls, but we're persons created after your own image, enfleshed, body, soul, mind, spirit, heart, everything that makes us what we are. Lord, we're here together, and your spirit unites us and binds us together through the Son to be his people. Thank you for the, for the reality of the church. And many of us have been damaged by, by church in the past because it's not perfect. But it's where we are experiencing your salvation and your healing and, and your grace at work in the world. And, and it is through us that you are offering this invitation to everyone. Not just to be rescued from the dangers of isolation, but to be brought into the security and the joy and the blessings of the flock. And you do it freely. And Lord, we, we receive that today by saying yes to you. Thank you, Jesus, for your free, voluntary sacrifice 
for the sheep. May everyone here this morning receive it and live in it and pass through the gate both directions. That's the only key to life that is real and life that never ends. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We present the rest of it to you and and all of ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.